this case may be, it's, the, the text is there as well. First Peter chapter 5. As I mentioned in the announcements, today we have the installation of Kevin Bigney as a ruling elder here in this congregation to serve among us. For this reason, I am breaking from our regular series. We're kind of at a transition point in Hebrews anyway, aren't we? We're going to be taking up a new psalm next time in Hebrews. So, uh, but I want to bring a message, a special message about the role of shepherds and sheep as it is revealed to us in the church. How do they function? How do they go together? So my text will be 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. Now I'll read the passage to you, so give careful attention because it is the word of God. 1 Peter 5, 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the, grace, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What gracious and glorious words from our Lord God. May the Lord now bless these words to our understanding, our edification, that we may walk with Him, that we may love Him, that we may serve Him. This is the last chapter in Peter's first epistle. One of his main themes throughout this epistle or letter is that God has given us a glorious inheritance reserved for us in heaven. But until we are brought to glory, it will be necessary for us to patiently respond to suffering as God's people. He he talks about that all the way through in this epistle. He stressed throughout that we must go in humble dependence upon Christ our Savior, looking to him for grace to sustain us even when those in authority over us mistreat us. He talks about that with the civil magistrate, with with masters and servants, with husbands, where there can often be abuse. Interestingly, he doesn't talk about church authorities abusing people. That, that does happen. But uh, if that had happened when Peter was alive, they would have been disciplined in these people that he was writing to. They would have been removed from office. He would have instructed them that way. And so this is something that he rather addresses how should the elders function and how should the people respond to those shepherds that are serving the Lord. 
Now, if you want to get principles about how to respond to ones that are abusive and are, and are not serving the Lord, then there's all kinds of content in Peter that talks about that, but it doesn't talk about that so much specifically. So in 1 Peter 5, then, he talks about church leadership and those under their leadership. In short, he tells us how to walk together as shepherds and sheep in the grace of God in a world where they're suffering. Peter assumes that the aim of both shepherds and sheep is to go on to glory, that we don't, we're, we're not looking to stay here forever in the fallen world with all of its suffering and our partial sanctification and all the rest, our infirm bodies. In verse 1, he mentions how as a fellow elder, he is a partaker of the glory that will yet be revealed, that will be revealed when Jesus comes. And in verse 4, he encourages his fellow elders that they will receive a crown of glory from the Lord, a victory crown for their faithful service. Then when addressing the sheep, he talks about being exalted in the future. If they walk in humble submission to the Lord, trusting trusting obedience before the Lord. And he sums up his whole letter with the promise of the hope of glory in verse 10 and 11, which will be the outcome of our walk in the grace of God. What does he say? Where are we going? You see, shepherds and sheep together. Where are we going? First Peter 5, 10. But may the, great, may the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory. That's where we're going. He called us there. By G- Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Nowhere in the New Testament do we have those lying uh, kind of preachers, except it it condemns them, to condemn them, but saying that, oh, you come to Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful in your life, you'll prosper and everything will go your way in this world. No, it's the opposite. After you have suffered, then the glory comes. So you see that both shepherds and sheep together are going to glory, they're going to God's house, they're going along together as shepherds and sheep. God has arranged his church in such a way that there are shepherds and sheep in the church and that when they walk in his grace, they walk together to glory. This, of course, is quite an obvious thing when you think about shepherds and sheep, when you think about that imagery. I mean, what would you think of a shepherd that went to his master alone? What kind of shepherd would that be? You know, so, okay, I'm going to glory. And he doesn't care whether anyone else is with him. I don't care about you. I'm going to glory. And he's pushing out to go. To go. That would be no shepherd. A shepherd without any sheep? What would he do when he got to his master? Where are the sheep? Oh, well, I just wanted to come by myself. Like you left the sh- What are you doing? You know, that, that would, he would be condemned. And what would you think about sheep that, decide that they don't need any shepherds. And, you know, they're just going to wander around in the wilderness. They don't need any accountability. They don't need any instruction. They don't need anybody to lead them by the still waters. They don't need anybody to warn them about wolves or, or guard them from those things. They're going to be fine on their... They don't need the other sheep either. You know, they'll just, hey, I'm okay. I got, I've just got a direct connection here with the Lord, and I'm just going to go on my own without that. What, what would happen to those sheep? 
See, this is all what is pointed to. Now, of course, if someone is in a situation where they're somehow cut off from the church, maybe they're in prison or something like that, and they're in a place where they can't have access to these things, God can certainly preserve people, can't he? But the point is that he has appointed this kind of a relationship for us as the ordinary way of his people that we're together with shepherds and sheep. Besides, in God's economy, part of our very restoration to him involves not only that we have a restored relationship with God, but also with other people. So that part of our whole growth and progress in in loving God involves caring for other people and loving other people and working together with other people, with each other. No Christian is meant to be isolated, separated from the fellowship of the church and detached from other members, nor are any to be without the care of the shepherds that Christ has appointed. A church without elders in the New Testament is a church that is not yet established. It's what we call a mission church. And we have provisional elders to give oversight to them, but they're praying and waiting until they can have their own elders, like Hope Mission in, uh, in our presbytery. The Lord has put us together then as shepherds and sheep to go on together to glory in His grace. So today we'll see how we're to walk together, to go forward with humility, looking to God to strengthen and establish and settle us. That's the goal, right? The shepherd's goal is to keep the flock together with Christ, the chief shepherd, to trust Christ and to see the whole, that the whole congregation trusts him, each individual and the congregation as a whole. So let's take a look first at what Peter says about the shepherds, then at what he says about the sheep, and then at how he speaks of what it looks like for both to go forward in partnership in humility in the grace of God. So first of all, the shepherds. Peter addresses the elders of the church with really quite tender compassion here. He has just been talking at length in chapter 4, the previous chapter, about how those who belong to Christ, that, that, as those who belong to Christ, that we should expect to suffer in this world. Really, as I said, he's been doing that through this whole epistle. He talks about all kinds of nasty people that we maybe have to deal with as, as his people in this, in this fallen world. He has said that if our master had to suffer, our Lord Jesus Christ, how could we expect to escape suffering? He has also said that judgment, in that previous chapter, that judgment begins with the house of God. God deals with us as his people first to refine us and to help us grow, we can expect to suffer more than the people in the world do many times. He, he will deal with those who are not his on the day of judgment, but those that he loves, he chastens and disciplines now. And after talking about this at length in that previous chapter, chapter 4, Peter turns to the elders with words that show that, that he's still thinking about that, what he was just talking about. He, he's not He's not completely gotten away from that whole theme about suffering. Because in verse 1, he says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. That's what he's talking about all the way through here. There's suffering now and glory that's to be revealed. And I saw that 
in the Lord Jesus Christ with my own eyes. He speaks about both suffering as well as the glory that will follow. He knows that it's a typical thing with the elders that, who, that they're the first. It's, it's ordinarily the case that they, they suffer first when persecutions come to the church. They're the target, the representatives of the church, the leaders of the church. Persecution falls on them first. Peter knows all about that. Peter mentions how as a fellow elder, so he's not saying as an apostle here, but as a fellow elder that he knows all about the terror that came to him as an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. He will forever recall how unnerved he was when he denied Christ before the servant girl and the servants of the high priest when he was gathered on that, that, that frightful night. But he is still serving the Lord. Why? Because he also knows the grace of the Lord Jesus who restored him. He knows that despite weakness, that God is faithful. And the Lord who has promised that he will, Peter, that he will inherit the glory of heaven when the, that glory is revealed. He says, I know what it is to be a man that has to face threats and potential suffering. But I also know what it is to be a man that has been appointed to glory by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In effect, Peter is saying that he knows and understands the terror when he's writing all these things about all the suffering that's going to come upon the church. But the terror that the elders have, he knows about that. He's a fellow elder. But he also knows that it's worth it to go on in faithfulness to Christ, to glory. What an encouragement this is to elders. Peter knows about it. When Peter was restored, Jesus simply said to him, feed my sheep. He said, take care of my lambs. Peter knows that it's well worth it to feed the sheep, even when it's dangerous and it might lead to martyrdom. Jesus told Peter that for him it would lead to martyrdom. He knows about this threat of suffering. How powerful it is then for this man to say to the elders who read the sacred page in all through history that in 1 Peter 5, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, even suffering in my own body with Christ, and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, I exhort you, he says, to feed the sheep. See how he sets forth the duty of a shepherd here who is on his way to glory with sheep that are on their way to glory entrusted to his care. First, he says simply to shepherd them. Very simple. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. That means that the shepherd is to see that the sheep are fed and watered. That's one of the main things, isn't it? The food is Christ and his word. The water is the Holy Spirit who gives vitality and refreshment to God's people through union with Christ. That's right. The shepherd's goal is to see that they continue in fellowship with Christ and with the Holy Spirit through word, sacraments and prayer. There are the appointed means. The elder is to see to that, that the people are feeding upon Christ, that they're growing in the word. He is also to protect them from imposters and false teachers who prevent the word 
or, or pervert it and, and who are also confuse them and lead them astray. He is to go after any sheep that drift away, to pursue them with vigor and tears, pouring out prayers before the Lord, to lead them back into fellowship with Jesus Christ. He is to warn them when they are in danger, to bring discipline when they are stubborn, to bandage up their wounds when they are hurt, wounded, or discouraged. He is to restore them and call them to repentance when they quarrel. He is to calm their fears by bringing them back to their master and to trust in their master even when there are heavy sufferings that are threatened to come upon them in their service to Christ. This is the service of an overseer, a watchman, a bishop, as it uses the term here, episkopos, who watches over them, the sheep, discerns their needs, and ministers to them appropriately. This is the work the shepherd is called to do, whether he, whether he is thanked or not. Yes, indeed, he is to pour his life into them as one who truly wants to help them. Picking up in verse 2 again, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. So serve him because he loves them. He is to love them. They belong to Christ who shed his blood for them. He is to love them and to delight in serving them. It should be to him a privilege, not an imposition or something he is forced into or does in a begrudging way. This is to be his attitude even when the sheep are difficult, when they keep getting into the same mischief, when they keep going astray, when they get themselves into the same mess again and again and again. He is to go as one who knows Christ has dealt with, how Christ has dealt with him, how patient Christ has been with him. He is supposed to be a man of maturity. That's why he's called an elder. An elder then should know more of what it is to be a sinner saved by grace than the people that are not as mature that he ministers to. If he does know that, he will be the most gracious one among them. Not that he won't be firm, not that he won't fear the Lord, not that he will be indifferent to the wrongs that they have done and even severe with those wrongs, for he is also one who from experience and discernment knows best the kind of danger that they are in and where it will lead if they continue on in the path that they're going down. In a beautiful way, in a mature elder, mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other in his ministry. Both are present. Sometimes it is a tendency in different periods of history for the elders to be only severe and and bringing the law and harshness. And other times it's for them to only be loving and not ever warn anyone, not ever counsel anyone about the direction they're going. There is a tenderness that is to be coupled with severity, tied together by godly love and concern for the outcome. Because what are we doing? We're going to glory. We're going through a world of suffering for Jesus Christ to glory. He is certainly not to serve for dishonest gain. It says for wealth, for honor, for reputation. If he's serving for those goals, he's not going to the city of Zion. He's not going to the calling that that we have of eternal glory. 
There are many who use ministry as a means of gain. Timothy was to warn the elders at, at Ephesus about that. These are not on the path to glory with Christ. They are on the pathway to destruction. Nor is he to serve the way those do who simply love to be in control. Some people will rise up to leadership because they just really love to control other people. They, they get off on that. They, they like to be in charge. They like to run things. As verse 3 says, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. That doesn't mean that a shepherd will be hesitant to command in the name of the Lord. Look at, look at Moses. Look at Paul. Look at the different. They, they command very firmly. You're not hesitant to do that in the name of the Lord or to exercise authority in the fear of God. It means that he is not to be a tyrant who issues his own commands and expects people to serve him and, and who, who, rather than preaching the commandments of the Lord. His goal is to see the sheep devoted to Jesus Christ, yearning to imitate his beauty. He wants to attach the sheep to Jesus by faith and love, for them to have faith and love for Christ. The shepherd wants to lead the sheep into the truth, not to drive them to the truth. He wants to set forth Christ to them, that they're feeding upon him, that they see his beauty, and that they go after him because they love him. That's his goal. So he uses the means that God has given him. And finally, the shepherds are to lead by example. Verse 3, leading by example. They are to be the first to hear the word of God and to apply it. The first to repent when sin is found in their life. The first to deal with wrongs that are done to them in a godly way. And the first to forgive those who have wronged them when they are reconciled. They are to be the first to show what it is to lean on Christ in the wilderness, to turn to him in their trials and in their afflictions and in their fears to go to him as our merciful and faithful high priest, as if he is indeed a merciful and faithful high priest, and to be transformed by his spirit, to trust him in trials, and to respond to his corrections. With this, with this impossible responsibility to be an example, we, no one can do that. Who is sufficient for these things? They are to show what it is to cry out for mercy to God to help them. And to say, to live a life that says, who is sufficient for these things? That they are looking to the Lord because they cannot do these things on their own. They're to go trusting in His grace to sustain them and to use them even in their weakness. Who knew this? Peter, who denied Christ. And who then later in his ministry, even after he was an established apostle who opened the door to the Gentiles, then goes and refuses to eat with Gentiles and had to be publicly rebuked by the Apostle Paul. He knew what this was to say, who is sufficient for these things? Left to myself, I am not worthy. Peter encourages shepherds that, that what he has sketched out for them is the pathway to glory and reward from Christ. If the shepherd goes in this pathway by the grace of God, then he's on what pathway? The pathway to glory. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, of course, that's Christ, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
Peter knew what it was to fail, as I just described. But he also knew what it was to serve a gracious master and to be picked up out of that failure, to be washed, to be shaken off, to be restored to service again, that he might do work for his gracious master, the work that he had entrusted to him, feed my sheep. He knew that going on with him in faith was the sure pathway to glory. And that was where he was going with the sheep that the Lord had entrusted to him. What motivation this is to know that in Christ we're on the pathway to eternal glory and to a crown. Because it is the Lord that makes us effective ministers of the new covenant. Now people say, well then is he not just doing it for himself? No, the Lord, Peter knew in his weakness that he needed to have that eternal blessing set before him or he would not go on. We're going to be studying Hebrews 11 soon. Why did all the people in the Old Testament do what they did in a world that was full of suffering? Why did Abraham do what he did? Why did Moses do what he did for all of those years? Because he had his eye on the glory that was to come. If serving God is only this, and that's the end of it, in a world of suffering, then God would be ashamed to be called their God. You see, we shouldn't be so proud as to say, oh, well, I, I don't do it for any, other, any motive at all. You know, no, these things are constantly set before us in Scripture. Peter knew that he needed to keep his eye on the glory that was to come. That's why he talks about it all the time in 1 Peter 5. He doesn't say just serve the Lord out of the sheer purity of your heart and wholesomeness. That you. He knows we don't have that. He says, do this because there's glory. You're going to glory. That's where we're headed. We're, we're going on to, to the glory that God has prepared for us. Not in this world, but when he returns, the glory that is to be revealed. That is what we seek. Don't be too proud to take the reward that God has set before you. The Bible teaches us to, to look not at the things that are seen in this world, but at the things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are just temporary. But the things that are not seen that God has promised to us, those things are eternal. That's what we're exhorted to all through the scripture. Now let's turn to look then at the sheep. He simply tells you as sheep to submit to your elders. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. If Jesus has placed them over you to lead you, you're to follow them and to submit to them. There is to be a beautiful harmony where the flock moves along together in unity with their shepherds. Isn't that how a, a, a sheep and shepherds look as they go about wherever they go? They, they go together, don't they? Together, the shepherd and the sheep are to go on for the Lord. It is very sad to see the tendency of so many people today who name the name of Christ to pull away from church, to refuse to submit to elders to refuse to take out membership in any church. People who just want to drift around and not be answerable to anyone, not be accountable. What kind of a situation is that for a sheep to remain in? There is an independent spirit that many children have today that is taught and inbred in them in the air of our culture. Just, you just have to live here and it's part of the way that, that everyone thinks Children who, instead of being delighted for the truth that they have received from their childhood, instead begin to feel that they have to try to find their true self somehow. That there's this thing inside of them that's what they really are. 
that's not independent of what they really are, of where they were put in the world and who, what God has done in their lives. This is a lie from Satan. They do not need to find their true self somewhere deep down inside of a bunch of layers within. They need to find and follow Jesus Christ, who is the truth. We don't know ourselves by looking down inside of ourselves and trying to see what we like and what we don't like. We learn what we ought to like and not like through Jesus Christ. And we, and, and we grow in His grace. His word is self-attesting. When you find it, when you submit to it, you know that it's true because it is true. We have a sense of God and we have a conscience. And when we come to the truth, we know that we are in the truth. False religion is not like that because it is not true. It's altogether different. You know, you have lies and you, you grow up and you see this is all lies. It doesn't, it, it's not real. It does not ring true. It, it has no salvation that it, that it satisfies. Only the truth has the cross for salvation. The Son of God made flesh, offered up for the sins of, of His people. Going all the way back to when God clothed Adam and Eve and promised the seed of the Son that would come. It is the way of reconciliation with the living God who made us. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sinners, that Christ is the only salvation, and then that we are God's sons when we have believed, destined for glory. Young people do not think that you are deceived because the truth seems like the truth to you. Say, I must be brainwashed because the truth seems like the truth. When you compare the truth to all that is out there, you will see that it clearly is the truth. Of course, some of us have come when we were not in the truth and have come to the truth when we were older and have seen that in a way that is, uh, that is discovered very powerfully. But the truth is the truth. And whether you have it from your youth or whether you have it later, the truth bears witness. Yes, there are things that are not as clear to us in some of the details, things that we're not all sure of. The church has different things that they debate and, and look at. But even then, when you see the truth of God's word, you know it to be true. God's spirit makes it clear. The submission of sheep to elders then corresponds to all that the elders were commanded to do as shepherds. Okay, the sheep are to submit to them, to be taught in the word, to, the, to have the food and drink, the refreshing waters of grace. They are to be there when the word is preached in their church. God has established the relationship with, with sheep and shepherd in local congregations. As Peter said to the elders, shepherd the flock of God, where? The shep shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. See, why absent yourself from church unless you are sick? How eager are you for the word of God? How eager are you to apply it? Why would you say, oh, church is meeting, and, but I don't want to go. You, can, you are to receive their correction, the correction of the shepherds, not to bristle and become sullen and resentful when you're corrected. That's not submission that the Lord has in view. Submission means that you repent when you're corrected with tenderness, whether the correction comes through a sermon or whether it comes through personal engagement with your shepherds. When you're weak and confused or struggling with sin, then submission means that you go to them for help. If you hide from the shepherds, how can they minister to you? If they do not know your wounds, how can they heal them? 
if you do not know that you are estranged from Christ, how can they come after you? It means that you are to follow the example of your shepherds. You're to follow them as they follow Christ. Not to imitate their vices, but to imitate their virtues. Don't let your heart make excuses. Don't be stubborn and critical or resentful. What we try to do is we criticize those parents or whatever uh, elders that are over us because it makes us feel like we don't need to follow them. It's part of our flesh. Don't, don't fall into unbelief, doubt, and discouragement. Of course, the elders are not perfect. Of course, they will sin against you, and they will often fail you, and they will often disappoint you. Of course, you are not to follow them when they're not directing you in the way of the Lord. Of course not. But this does not change the fact that God has appointed that there should be congregations with shepherds and sheep, and that he uses them for the progress of his people. It is his ordinance. It is his intention for shepherds and sheep to walk together in the Lord, despite all of their imperfections. God's blessing falls where unity is found. What we sang in Psalm 133, that that is the arrangement that God has established. From here, both shepherds and sheep are given instruction and encouraged to go on together to, to glory in the great to go on to glory together in the grace of the Lord. Let's see now how Peter marvelously instructs shepherds and sheep to go forward together in humility and grace. Humility seems to permeate everything here in what he talks about. It's, it's just, it's the dominant thing. Humility is to permeate our walk as shepherds and sheep. Peter says, verse 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. We all have many relationships that call for submission. Elders are submit to submit to one another. They're to submit to the presbytery as a whole that oversees the churches, men, which, which are men gathered to, to do that. In, in the Bible, men as the heads of their home are to submit to the elders. And the elders are to address them in particular. Then those men are to, their wives are to submit to them as they shepherd their homes. And the children are to submit to their parents in the Lord. There's a kind of submission we have to our peers as well. One elder to another, one family to another, one sibling to another. God has appointed this manner of our, our living. He says that we're all, so this is not just addressed to the sheep, we're all to be clothed with humility. Ultimately, what is humility? Ultimately, humility is living with the sense that God is much greater, much wiser, much holier, much more powerful than you, and that you need his help, both his counsel and his enabling grace. You don't have the answers. He does. You don't have the strength. He does. You see yourself as a sinner. It's portrayed in the Song of Solomon, coming out of the wilderness. It's portrayed really in the whole Bible. Coming out of the wilderness of sin and death. Desperate and helpless and ignorant. And so you lean on Him for salvation. As the Song of Solomon, you come up out of the wilderness leaning on your beloved. And practically, that means that you pray. Humility. 
You look to him because you don't have what it takes. It means that you feed on his word, both sheep and shepherds. Shepherds, most of all, should do this, that you're diligent in seeking him in the sacraments and that you submit to the elders that he has placed over you. If you're an elder that you lead, not according to your own directives and wisdom, but according to his word, you are clothed with his his humility. It defines you. What you're clothed with defines you. It is what is evident. You lean on Christ. We're told that this humility is the way to obtain grace. Continuing in verse 5, it says, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Humility is the pathway to receive grace. If you're proud and suppose that you can get on fine without God, you're, uh, you, you have aligned yourself with the deception that Satan used to bring about the fall of mankind. That you don't need to go God's way. You'd be better off making your own decisions, doing what you think is best, following your own heart. That's the best way for you to go. God will leave you to your own device if you do that. He'll leave you to go on in your own wisdom, except that he, will restrain, he restrains people in various ways because if he, if he just completely abandoned the world to go wherever they want to go, the world would be completely, it would destroy itself by now. That, there's, it would be gone long, long ago. Yeah, there's a restraint that he puts on. He restrains people from doing all the, that they would do, but he leaves them more or less to go their own way. And we see the fruit of it. He lets it work out in the world. He has done that with many in the world. It does not go well when we are left to our own devices. And we're, we're, uh, we, we, we go to ruin. But God gives grace to who? He resists the proud, self-sufficient. He gives grace to the humble. He looks to the one who looks to him, and he helps that one. I tell you, he helps them in remarkable ways, and he helps them to a remarkable extent. He redeems them through his son sent from heaven to die for their sins. He gives them the Holy Spirit to transform them. He preserves them and keeps them and brings them at last to live in his house forever and ever. The grand thing is that even this humility is a gift of his grace. For we are, we are too foolish and rebellious to ever even go to the Lord unless he grabs us, unless he takes us. He has to change our stubborn heart and will. Our wickedness makes us blind and unwilling And he opens our eyes to see that when he begins a work of salvation in you, there is a spark of desire. It is there. It is a God wrought spark of desire. It is from God. It causes you to sincerely desire to have his salvation. You see your need for grace. You humble yourself and he gives you more and more grace and you go on looking to him. God has appointed that shepherds and sheep are to do this together. They're to go on in humility, looking to the Lord. Together, they're to look for God's grace in their relationship with each other. Shepherds praying for their sheep and sheep praying for their shepherds. The grace is multiplied as they go on together in humility because they're helping each other along the way. How important it is to be humble. So there is this instruction then more about humility to be deliberate about being humble. Verse 6, 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. These words show us that humility is not just something that you just happen to have. Oh, I'm just kind of naturally a humble person and the person over there is not really very naturally a humble person. That's not what he's talking about here. Now, to an extent, that kind of thing is that, that you do have humility when God reveals things to you and it, you, you become humble when you when you see who you are and your sin and you see who he is and what he's done. You, it, it definitely humbles you. But this is showing us that it's something that you do as a deliberate thing, that you find yourself always so proud and then you humble, you, you deliberately humble yourself and, and you turn from that to follow him. It's a, it's a duty that we have. We deliberately have to get off our high horse to say, I'm on the high horse. And then to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as it says here. We must put away our pride. We must say, I have not been crying out to God for mercy. What do I think? Do I think I'm sufficient? To serve God? Do I think I'm sufficient to go on to glory? Do I think I'm sufficient to save myself? Why am I not crying out to God? We know that we need Him. We must deliberately start believing and obeying His word by grace. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In whatever way you're resisting, stop it and yield to Him. Go to His word, bow before Him, cry out to Him, have mercy on me, a sinner, and He will hear you. You're to put everything into his hands with confident trust. What do you do when you're not humble? You hang on to You want to have control because you don't trust God with it. At the end, at the end of verse 6, it says, you, it tell, you're instructed to wait for him to exalt you at the proper time. Remember what I was talking about before? It's not in this world. That's the proud. Look for the reward now. You focus on leaning on him, on humbling yourself, on following him without regard to your present position. Verse 7 explains, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This speaks of us together as shepherds and sheep, leaving it to God to do what he will with us because we know that he will be very gracious. Now you follow that? Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. In humility, we do what he tells us to do, and we leave our safety, our status, and all the rest with him. We cast our care upon him. The word you, interestingly, is plural here. Peter is saying you, you and your shepherds, cast your care on the Lord as one who cares for you. When hard times of suffering are coming, we are to turn to him together, turn to the Lord together. And say, Lord, we are here for you. We're not here to get something that we're aiming at in this world. We're here for you. We're disposable. If we're to die or if we're to live, we're here for you. Do whatever you see fit with us. We know that you care for us. And we leave it to you to do with us whatever you wish. Give us grace to go on serving you. That's what the shepherds and the sheep say together, what they encourage one another to do. Shepherds are to help sheep do this, and shepherds and sheep are to do this together, to cast their care upon the Lord because He cares for them. 
This humility will include watching out for your adversary, the devil. If we know our weakness, if we're humble, if we know how easily we fall and are led astray, then what do we do? We're watchful. We're vigilant. We say, I'm in, I'm in danger. I'm in danger. Be sober, it says, verse 8. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's actually trying to harm you. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The ones who walk in humility are aware of the danger that Satan poses. Peter was not aware of that when Jesus was going to the cross. He was not sober. He was not vigilant at that time. He was not concerned that his adversary, the devil, was walking about seeking whom he may devour. Peter was proud. I will never deny you, he said. We know that Satan is going about. The term that's used here is like an opponent in a lawsuit. He's going to to try to, to... bring criticism against you to show that you're not you're not of God that you're not with God he is a malicious accuser Alan Stibbs says his aim is to sow discord to get people to start speaking against each other to break up the relationships in the body of Christ his aim is to show discord to break fellowship by malicious suggestion he accuses God to men and men to God and men to each other his aim is to undermine confidence to silence confession, to get us to stop believing. He wants us, he wants to destroy the relationship between shepherd and sheep. He wants sheep to say, I don't trust the shepherds. I'm getting out of the church. I'm not going to be in a church. I'm going to go off on my own because I've been hurt too many times. He wants shepherds to say, I have no use for those sheep. Why should I pursue them? He wants to break our relationship. He wants to divide us so he can conquer us. He wants husbands divided from their wives. He wants children divided from their parents and not trusting them. And he sows discord, malicious slander, gossip, thoughts. He wants the shepherds in the church divided, and he wants the sheep divided from each other. He wants shepherds to accuse sheep and sheep to accuse shepherds. We are not ignorant of his devices. We must be alert We must be watchful, vigilant, and we must resist him standing in the faith. He will try to turn you against God in your sufferings and afflictions. God has not been good to you. You can't trust him. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, even in the garden when they were in paradise. You can't trust God to do what is best. You take matters into your own hands, and then you'll be like God. You be the one that decides what's good for you and what's evil for you. You don't follow what God says. Don't trust this one. You can't trust him. He's not good. That was slander. That was accusation. He will get you to be like Adam and Eve and question that. That is where most people in the world are. They're on a pathway to destruction because they don't believe God. They don't trust in their creator. They don't look to him as the one that they ought to serve and who who they need for salvation. No matter what happens to us in this world, we are to resist the temptation to question God. He has told us that we must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Peter says that in the previous chapter. When it comes, when tribulation and trouble comes, we must resist Satan, Satan steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced 
by your brotherhood in the world. This is the way he said it's going to be. This is the way it is. To stand like that, we need each other. We need to stand together. Paul talks about this so much in Philippians, in about standing together in the grace of the Lord. We're a body with shepherds and sheep, and we're to stand together. Such are the features of the walk of humility between the shepherd and the sheep. And finally, see where the humble walk brings us for our encouragement. And I've already talked about this. What is the end of that walk? What is at the end of the road? Where are we headed with all of this? Are we headed nowhere? Are we just going in circles forever and ever and ever? No. Verse 10, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our God, the God of all grace, brings us to eternal glory at last. That is where the church goes when we walk in humility, leaning upon Christ our Savior and walking in brotherly love love and concord as shepherds and sheep. We are to help each other to keep this hope that is set before us as as the day approaches. The goal of the shepherd is to keep the sheep together, trusting in the Lord Jesus, feeding upon him, drinking the water that he gives us, marching onward and upward to the glory that he has prepared for us. But note the words. Peter will not let his reader forget this. After you have suffered a while. Suffering is unavoidable for us as those who are coming out of this sinful world that opposes Christ and this sinful world that our flesh clings to much more than we ought. Again, we must lean on the Lord Jesus. We must walk together, encouraging each other to lean on Him as our great high priest who is merciful and compassionate and who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high where He has all authority and power and is able to deliver us. Through all of it, as we go forward in humility, what happens? He will perfect establish, strengthen, and settle us. That's his design. To perfect is to bring us to the goal that he has for us of living in his house forever. The completion of that task. To establish us is to make us firmly attached to him, bonded there. To strengthen us is to give us the grace that we need to go on for the Lord, strength that we do not yet have, that He is cultivating in us. To settle us is to bring us to rest in His house so that we are confident and not fretful about everything. And the best thing of all is that through all of this, His glory is revealed to us and to all the world in the end. We were made to be His worshipers. How well we will do that when His glory is revealed. When our love for Him is complete. When we're fully finished. We do not do it so well now. But that is where we're headed. As shepherds and sheep together by His grace. Let's go as God has appointed us in humility. Leaning on Jesus Christ our Savior. Soon we will be perfected, strengthened, established, 
and settled. The shepherds with their sheep and the sheep with their shepherds and all of us with Christ Jesus forever and ever as the chief shepherd. Paul said his yearning and great desire is to be with the people that he shepherded and to see them in glory before the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping and praising him. That is the outcome that we seek to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Oh Lord, if you have so worked in us that we are are your disciples, that you have done a work of grace in our heart, then we all have an appetite for the glory that is yet to be revealed. Father, we are, we are ready to go through whatever you call us to go through in one respect. In another respect, we're not very ready at all. But Father, we know if we are your children, that this is the way that is good. This is the way that is desirable, that there is no other way, that we have no other place to go, that you have the words of eternal life, that every other way is a dead end, that every other way is in many ways worse than a dead end. It leads to destruction and ruin and misery. And as long as it goes on in this world, it goes round and round and round and never gets anywhere. But we thank you, O Lord, that in Christ Jesus, that we're able to go onward. We're able to go upward to glory. We're able to go together as your people. And I pray that you would help us to be a strong encouragement to one another. And Father, please have mercy on us. Certainly, we have seen a lot of sin in our lives in looking at these things. Father, as shepherds, how how much failure there is. It's very, very convicting to see this. And Father, with sheep, how much failure there is. Father, we pray that you would help us, O Lord, and forgive us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your tenderness and your patience with us and how that you respond to us when we humble ourselves and cry out to you. And we thank you that if we are your people, that you resist us when we're proud because you do it to restore us and to bring us back. We don't see any fellowship with you. We don't have any grace in our lives. And then we humble ourselves and you return to us again, which is what your desire was all along. We think again about the Song of Solomon and how that the, the bride snuffed her husband and she, she resisted him and, and snubbed him and how that he went away and withdrew. The Lord Jesus withdrew. And then she began to yearn for him. And he still stayed away for a while. And she yearned more and more. And then he came back again. And how sweet was the union that she had restored with her Lord. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us, oh Lord, that if we have been resistant, if we have been decaying in our walk with you, if we've been, we, we've been pushing you away, we pray that we would humble ourselves and we would return to you, oh Lord, and we would return to the pathway that goes to glory. We pray, Lord, for those who may not know you. Oh, Lord, that you would convict them, that you would bring light to them. For the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray, Father, that they would not go on in the darkness, that you would open their eyes. And we pray that they would not resist because, 
Lord, if they cease to resist, then indeed their eyes will be opened. Oh, Lord, we pray that, that by your powerful mercy and grace that you would bring light to them that they cannot resist. Father, we thank you for doing that to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in the light of your truth and that we would go on with joy and gladness for you have done great things for us. Our salvation is in your hands. And for this, we thank you, O Lord. Bless us now, O Lord, as we continue on in this service and help us to walk in fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, so we come to that time in our service when we're going to have the uh, installation of uh, now the blessing of the Lord. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.